Welcome to The Machine, everyone. I am your host, Mario, here with my co-host, Jeff Rowe. Journey with us as we adventure into conspiracy theories and the unexplained. Hello. Welcome back, everyone, to The Machine. I'm here with my co-host, Jeff Rowe. Jeff Rowe, how are you? I'm doing good. We're doing our AM radio voices today. This is wonderful. We love doing our AM radio voices we hope everyone can hear us, and we're going to be talking about, what is it, Jeffro? Yeah, I, I can't do that that long. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a trained professional. All right, Jeffro is not a trained professional, but we are going to be talking about what, Jeffro? Breakaway civilizations. Breakaway civilizations. I am taking a back seat to this episode here, Jeffro, if you don't mind. Because you've done so much research, I don't want to step on... Well, I don't even think I could possibly step on your toes with this one. This is You've molded this into a nice little fat baby that you love, right? And you just... Little little fat baby that you coddle. And, oh, look at my little fat baby. It's a wonderful fat baby. This is your fat baby. Wow. With an introduction like that, I hope I can live up to it. Well... Let's hope that the, the fat baby doesn't get diabetes and kill over by the end of this uh, series here. Because this is going to be more than one episode, right? Yeah, this is going to be a two-parter at least, maybe even three. We'll see how it plays out. Let's see how it plays out. Let's, you, but you got to start somewhere, right? Here yeah, let's go. start. Um, breakaway Civilizations. Uh, the reason why I wanted to bring this information to you guys is I, ca- I came across initially uh, just something simple. You and I were texting back and forth. And uh, it was the, the Air Force patch. For the Delta Delta Space Patch, right? Uh, okay. If you guys have uh, seen that patch, maybe we sent a photo out on on Discord or whatever. But basically, what it is is it's a patch for Space Force for a special ops group within that branch of military. And what it is is it's basically the planet with the Pharaoh's head on top of it, pointing up to the North Star, and. What ended up happening was, I was like, huh, there's a lot of symmetry in the in that past. There's a lot of... Very symbolic. Symbolic, hidden meanings, hidden messages. And what I ended up doing was I started bringing up some information that I not only recently came across, but information that I knew about previously. So I decided to go back and reintroduce myself to the information that I came across last year. And in doing so, as I seemingly do, it, I started seeing... A through pattern. I started seeing uh, connections, and it became so undeniable. I had a, I had to dive into it. And it seemed as though I kept getting more information. I kept building everything more and more and more. I we, we wanted to do a podcast going back three weeks ago with this, but I kept delaying because I kept finding more information. So here we go with this. Uh, breakaway civilizations. What we're talking about here is a group or a government or people who have no longer consider themselves part of our day-to-day rational civilization. You know, whether it be defined like America, uh, England, France, Germany, a civilization that basically has secluded themselves and broken away. To create their own hierarchy, their own rules, their own possibly even monetary funds, just their 
their own essence, right? They're not even part of what we would consider maybe world governments. They're not part of the UN. They're not part of NATO. They're a breakaway civilization. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure people are listening right now and going, oh, you're talking about a cult. Possibly, yeah. Going right, right down that path. Exactly. So I'm also talking about a breakaway civilization that has the power of flight as well. And that's a key component in what we're talking about here. Whoa, 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 whoa. the power of flight. Okay, so you say the power of flight, I'm thinking plane. Plane, right. I'm thinking rocket, right? Right. Are, are you not talking about these things? Are we not talking about a structure? What, what are you saying to me here? Okay, well, leading into this, that's a perfect lead into how <laughs> we're going to do the beginning of this. The, the first question, or the, or the first statement I'm going to make here is, and I'm going to ask you, Mario, you could play the part of the audience here. Who were we told and where were we told was the beginning of the flight? The modern idea of flight. The Wright brothers, correct? Yeah. Okay, yeah. In 1903, we're told that they were the first ones to accomplish individual flight in 1903 in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Okay. A couple of brothers who are from Ohio, right? The From Dayton, Ohio. As a matter of fact, the famous Air Force Base. You mean Wright Patterson? Wright Patterson is named after the Wright brothers. Okay. So from that point going forward, we see this lineage or we see this evolution of flight, right? From the Wright brothers all the way up to the secret technology that we have today, the uh, stealth bomber, right? Mm -hmm. That was secret up into the Gulf War to the public. And that's what we're told in school. That's what we're taught in high school, junior high. You know, the Wright brothers discovered flight. Yeah. We were taught a lot of things in school. Yeah. Well, I mean, even if you would ask the commoner on the sidewalk today, you would. Sure. It would be the Wright brothers. Sure. Now. That's how if, indoctrination works, Jeffro. That's how indoctrination works, right? What if I were to tell you that that wasn't the case? What? I mean, I want to be surprised, but. I mean, come on. We're both on this podcast for a reason, right? Right. No, exactly. Um, have you ever heard of the 1897 airship flap, the airship mystery? Uh, you know, honestly, I can't say that I have. Okay. So in 1897, there was a rash of airship sightings. And at this time, people didn't know what they were seeing. Right. They were seeing these long cigar shaped like objects. Matter of fact, there's the famous the famous uh article in Aurora, Texas in eighteen ninety six where the claim the first UFO crashed. Right? There's the in Aurora, Texas, outside of Dallas, there was a ship that came down, knocked out a windmill, they said there was an alien body, they buried it in a well. Uh once the transfer of the property went to the new owner in the mid-1900s, he actually used the well without realizing there was airship remains there. Uh, drinking from this well caused him cancer, so he sealed it up and no one knows about it. Um, we can always go into that, that mystery a little bit deeper, but that's sort of along the lines of all these different stories that happened in 1896-1897. So you're telling me this guy's drinking from 
a well that has an alien carcass inside of Not it? Not the carcass, the, the remnants of the ship. Okay, the remnants of the ship. Or at least ship. that's the speculation. Okay, so the carcass isn't in a well. No. Well, the actually, the carcass, the, the, the story goes that the carcass was actually given Christian rites and buried in the local cemetery. But they kept the grave unmarked because they didn't want people coming and messing around with it. Because I'm sure that's what that alien would have wanted, a dogmatic religious type of burial. Okay. Anyway, go on. Or maybe there's a reason why it was given to Catholic Christ. Well, yeah. <laughs> but that's for another story. That that was just one of the examples of this airship mystery. And one of the greatest things about this airship mystery was there was a lot of documentation. And there's a lot of stories. And I actually came across a lot of these stories. And I wanted to present these stories because I think it's important... If, if we're going to talk about secret flight, if we're going to talk about exotic technologies, we, ha- we have to have a base of information. We have to, there, there has, it had to start from somewhere, right? Yeah. You can't just start in 1903 and say all of a sudden there's this great technology and the common people or just the regular citizens, all we know is what the Wright brothers discovered. There has to be some basis for well, there to be an exotic technology at this time. Didn't Da Vinci have a flying machine? Exactly. And as we get into this, that's where a lot of this quote-unquote secret exotic technology actually comes from. Is from ancient writings like the Vimanas from the Bhagavad Gita in ancient India. And Da Vinci's writings and drawings. If, if you look at some of these drawings of these these ships that we're going to get into, they're very similar to those drawings and writings of Da Vinci and so on and so forth. Okay. Um, but with these airships, these airships were being seen all throughout the Midwest and out West, starting in San Francisco, Milwaukee, Detroit. And some of these stories were written, and we have to kind of put ourselves in the mindset of the people at the time. So we're still talking about the late 1800s, right? No, yeah, we're, we're, we're at 1897, okay. six, seven years prior to the Wright brothers. And we're looking at trying to figure out if there's evidence before the Wright brothers about flight. Now, around this time, they did have dirigibles, but they, you know, zeppelins or blimps. But they were really rudimentary, and they often barely got off the ground, and they didn't travel more than a couple hundred feet. Okay, okay, and in America, they weren't even really... The technology, we were told, wasn't even that far. A lot of the good technology about the dirigibles were in Germany and France at this time. And they had a few that could go 5 or 10 miles and get a couple hundred feet off the ground. But, you know, for whatever reason, they hadn't, at this point, discovered the ability to get lift and lift up enough weight and, and travel with any means of safety. But these ships, despite that being the case at the time, these ships have different have, have technology that they're supposing that these ships traveled hundreds of miles. So there's a propulsion there. There seems to be a propulsion. Um, some of these discoveries started out in the San Francisco area. There was this report from the Oakland Tribune on December 1st in 1896. And this description goes like this. The airship looked like a great black cigar and a fish-like tail. Wait, this is 1996? 
1896. You said 1996. Oh, my apologies. 1896. We're talking about the... 1896. We're talking about the 1896-1897 airship mysteries. Okay. Okay, and again, all these mysteries, they were written down in in the newspaper articles at the time with really no understanding of what they were seeing. Okay, so the body was of at least 100 feet long, attached to it was a triangular tail with one apex being attached to the main body. The surface of this airship, airship looked as if it were made up of aluminum, which exposed, which when exposed to wind and weather, had turned dark. The airship went at tremendous speeds, and as near as it neared the city Lorne, it turned quickly, and disappeared into the direction of San Francisco. And half past eight, the citizens saw it again when it took about the same direction and disappeared. And this story came from the Oakland Tribune in in 1896, December 1st. There was another instance, and this was a huge flap of sightings in the Chicago area. And this was recorded by the Chicago Record in 1897. Uh, Through April 2nd through April 12th, there was about six or seven different sightings and the sightings continued over Chicago and Evanston, into Illinois, into Michigan, and even seen in Iowa. The reports continued from Omaha, into Nebraska, into Fort Dodge, uh, Kansas, Iowa, and Milwaukee. And as a matter of fact, we have a story from Milwaukee. This comes from the Milwaukee Journal and the Milwaukee Sentinel, along with the Milwaukee Daily News and the Milwaukee Evening. Uh, In 1897, airship mysteries were immediately preceded into Chicago on Friday, April 9th, 1897. An initial crowd gathered on Oakley Street on Chicago's north side, watched what was described by various witnesses as a red light, a manifestation of an airship. Eventually, thousands of people saw the airship in Chicago. Later that evening, sightings were also reported again in Evanston, Lake Mills, Wisconsin, and finally Wausau, Wisconsin creating the impression that it was a single ship, an object traveling north and west. The Milwaukee airship sighting began the next day. And this is an excerpt from the Milwaukee Daily News. It was first seen on the northern horizon, and about the only persons who were up at the time and were not seeing things double were a few newspaper men, police officers, and a guard at the House of Corrections. All of these are willing to make an oath they saw in the airship come from the north a little before the break of daylight and that it disappeared again, reversing itself and fading from view in the north. Last night, the stranger made its appearance again in the heavens around 9 o'clock. It came from the northeast from out over the lake, Michigan. There was no possibility of a mistake this time because thousands of people saw it. And in a few minutes, they were following the machine as it floated over the city. It traveled towards the southwest until it reached a point directly over City Hall, where it stopped for a quarter of an hour. Then the excitement in the downtown districts became intense. It was reported that attempts were being made to anchor the machine. Uh, A Mr. Mayer, a traveling man, had a field glass ranged on the machine and said he distinctly saw four men in it. Station keeper Harry Moore of the Central Police Station saw it distinctly and was one of the few who at the same time did not lose his head. He says, The machine, or whatever it was, anchored or stopped directly over the city hall, 
The light which I saw was suspended from a large, dark, oval-shaped object, the shadow of which could be distinctly seen. In fact, it could be seen so plainly that I could discern the wheels were working. I did not see anyone in it, but anyone who claims that the thing I saw floating over the city hall is simply a star don't know what he is talking about. I saw it too distinctly to be fooled. He said, I should judge about it was a thousand feet above City Hall. After hovering for about 15 minutes, it went back and disappeared in the northeast. And then here's, again, another article. This one from the Chicago Record. Uh, the residents of Milwaukee cannot be talked out of what they saw. Thousands report the authenticity of a giant, beautiful airship with colored lights. The police records are full of stories, for they have been called to answer what it is. So here, you know, there you go. You got actual newspaper reports at a time when nothing should be in the skies over America at all. So <clears throat> this this structure, this aircraft machine, as they call it, comes inland from Lake Michigan. One of the one of the quotes, or yeah, one of the reports was it came from Michigan. They're, they're actually trying to anchor this thing down. I think I heard you say in your when you were reading off this story, the, this, this the, headline. The guy said that it anchored, meaning it stopped its location in the sky over top of City Hall. Oh, okay. So I must have misheard you then. It almost sounded like to me like some of the citizens were trying to pull this thing down out of the sky, and I'm like, okay. No, it's it's interesting you say that though because people were trying to basically describe what they had never seen before, right? And the only thing they can at this point in time really compare it to would be something like a ship, mm. right? Um, it's so fascinating to me that there's so many stories from all these new paper, newspaper articles at the time. And some of these instances are really, really fascinating. Um, again, here's a, another article, and this comes from uh, the claims of a John Barclay who lived near Houston at the time. On 21st of April in 1897, John Barclay was awoken late one evening by the barking of his dogs. He also noticed a high-pitched whirring sound outside. Having read about the reports of airships locally sightings over the previous months, Barclay took his gun and went outside to investigate. To his belief, once outside, descending nearby was a, star, was a strange airship. Barclay, who to all who knew him, was a credible witness, as you could ask for would later tell the Houston Post in time for its edition the following day that it was a curious-shaped body, an oblong shape, with wings with side attachments of various sizes and shapes. Barclay also noted that there were bright lights on board the ship, much brighter than electric lights. As he approached, the lights on the vessel went out. The night, however, left enough light for him to still keep the craft within his vision. He kept on towards it, before seemingly out of nowhere, a man stepped into his path and asked him to lower his gun as he would come, no harm, come to no harm to him. Barclay did as he asked and then asked the person his name. The person said, never mind my name. And he asked Barclay, he gave Barclay a $10 bill and asked him to get him some lubricating oil, two cold chisels, some bluestone, and that Barclay may keep the change for your trouble. When asked if Barclay could see the ship, the man replied, No, we cannot permit you to approach any nearer, and once again asked him to obtain the items he required, 
and for his kindness they would call on him some future day and take him for a ride. The Houston Post reported that Barclay managed to get all the oil, the chisels, but not the bluestone, and because of this, he offered the man his $10 back, which the man refused, and told Barclay to keep. Perhaps the strangest part of the story was when Barclay received, he asked the man where he was from and where the ship was going, and as he made, made his way, as the man made his way back to the starship, the man said, from anywhere was his response which makes no sense whatsoever there was another airship i mean the, not not to interrupt you here no, but no, before yeah, you go guys, ahead. Any, anytime you, this sounds like a classic men in black yeah right an, exactly. an occurrence a men in black occurrence that, that which you know i'm sure we'll do a podcast on specifically in the in, in the future maybe even possibly the near future but that's what this sounds like the classic men in black Somebody sees something, all of a sudden these men in black show up. You didn't see anything. Uh, more often than not, non-threatening, but given the idea that, hey, you're... Stay quiet. Stay quiet. It's going to benefit you. Right. Does any time in history, or any time even recent history, you see an exotic technology, or you see something strange, you see aliens, or you see anything, you always have this request of staying silent. It, it's, it seems to be repeating all throughout history. And uh, as I said, these stories continue all throughout 1897. Again, in a time when it doesn't make any sense that flight is even real. There's some really dramatic, some really other dramatic uh, reportings in Texas. In Merkle, Texas, on the 25th of April... In 1897, an airship was seen high up in the clouds with what looked like an anchor dragging on the ground. The anchor eventually became caught in a railway track. The witnesses, by much of the community who were returning from church at the time, saw the object, and seemingly it was too high up to distinguish with any clarity. It was uh, obfuscated by the clouds. After ten minutes, a man dressed in blue suit began to shimmy down the rope before cutting it loose and as people noticed, uh, were watching him, allowing the ship to sail off through the clouds. And there was no understanding what it was that they saw. So, so this 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 is midday because people are coming back from church. I believe he said it was right. Right. So this guy climbs down this rope. So this the ship's dragging this anchor, if you will. This airship, right? This airship, and it gets caught on a railroad, right? right. This guy in a blue suit shimmies down this anchor, well, this rope attached to this anchor. out of nowhere, right? Because, you know, they don't necessarily see the ship. It's being... Right, right. But it's but we're talking midday. Midday. On a, a, a Sunday, I presume. Right. This guy comes down this rope, cuts it, cuts the ship loose from the anchor, and then what? Just climbs back up, or the ship sails away as so he, the guy is shimmying back up the rope. So he just cuts it loose, and but he's still attached to the piece that's yeah to the ship. Okay, what about the anchor? The, well, the anchor's still there, apparently on the you know on the railroad tracks. But where is this anchor? Where did it go? Well, it got caught in the railroad tracks. No, I know that, but well, the, oh, you're saying there's physical evidence, right? Right. Yeah. So where did it go? Right. That's my question. 
Well, that's they don't explain that in the in the, in the <laughs> newspaper article. But you, holes in your story here. I'm poking. Well, no, no. Well, you bring up a good question because it yeah. seems like there's physical evidence to this, which actually brings more credence to the stories, right? There's physical evidence now. There's an anchor in Merkle, Texas. What's going on with it? Yeah. Um, it, I, would, I would assume some sort of you know, if we're talking about something that's extraterrestrial, it's a foreign materialized body, right? Possibly if, it's extraterrestrial, if, yeah. If it's extraterrestrial, right? Right. Which is a big if. Right. And, and these stories continue. There's another story that happened in 1897 on the 6th of May out of Hot Springs, Arkansas. Uh, a deputy sheriff, Macklemore, and a constable, constable Sumter witnessed an airship land nearby on an extremely rainy night. They approached the vehicle, and their crew demanded knowing who they were and what they were doing. A man with a long, dark beard carrying a light of sorts approached them and stated that he and his passengers, another man and a woman, were traveling across the country in an airship. The other man was observed filling sacks full of water, while the sheriff noticed that the woman kept to herself hidden away with an umbrella pulled down over her face. The policemen were invited to join the strangers on the vessel, saying, We can't take you where it is not raining, or we can take you where it is not raining, and they politely declined. Macklemore noticed that the brightest light on the ship kept going on and off, something he asked the man with the beard about, who replied that the light was so powerful that it consumed a great deal of his motive power, and with that the airship was gone. What is also interesting about the site is that in Hot Springs, it's also the natural site of crystals. Okay. The natural crystals. This is actually one of the places where you can go and mine like little diamonds and whatnot. Okay. So there seems to be a connection. Same thing with the connection in Northern California with Mount Shasta. Gotcha. Right? Um, and as we dive into this a little bit deeper, we're going to start seeing these connections with water. There's connections with water all throughout these stories. And I wanted to bring up one more story here with this airship of 1897. Again, to this day, no one actually knows what this mystery is. They, they famously call it the 1897 mystery, airship mystery. During this time, there was another story about a name, a famous man by the name of Wilson. Okay, and this Here's another interesting thread that we're going to see through all these stories. These people that were on these airships are always asking for water when they land. And a lot of these stories are happening in Texas and California. This is another one that happens in Texas. Um, this comes from the book uh, Genesis, written by W.A. Harbinson, which was written in 1882. The most intriguing of the numerous contact stories involved a man who called himself Wilson. The first incident occurred in Beaumont, Texas on April 19, 1897, when J.B. Lejean, the local agent for Magnolia Brewery, and his son Charles noticed lights in the Johnson's pasture a few hundred yards away, and they went to investigate. They came upon two men standing beside a large, dark object which neither of the witnesses could see clearly. One of these men asked Lejean for a bucket of water. Lejean let these men have it, and then the men gave their name as Mr. Wilson. He then told Lejean that he and his friends were traveling in a flying machine, that they had taken a trip out to the Gulf of Mexico, and they were returning to the quiet Iowa town 
where the airship and four others like it had been constructed. When asked, Wilson explained that electricity powered the propellers and wings of the airship. Then he and his friends got into the airship and Lejeune watched it ascending. The next day, on April 20th, Sheriff H.W. Baylor of Uvalde, Texas, went to investigate a strange light and voices in the back of his house. He encountered an airship and three men. One of the men gave his name as Wilson from Goshen, New York. Finally, early in the evening of April 30th in Deadwood, Texas, a farmer named H.C. Legrone heard his horses bucking as if in a stampede. Going outside, he saw a bright white light circling around the fields nearby, illuminating the entire area before ascending, before descending and landing in one of the fields. Walking to the landing spot, Legrone found a crew of five men, three of whom talked to him while the others collected water in rubber bags. The man informed Legrone that their ship was one of five that had been flying around the country recently, that theirs was, a f in fact, the same one that had landed in Beaumont a few days earlier, that all the ships had been constructed in an interior town in Iowa, and that they were reluctant to say anything else because they had not yet taken out any patents by May of the, that same year that the sightings ended. Whether the various sightings and conversations with Mr. Wilson were the same person or different people is not completely clear. If they were the same Wilson, the airship must have been quite fast to be everywhere that he was sighted. Alternatively, the sightings might have involved several different Wilsons. So again, in these stories, they're, they're not all exact. The one story says there was four ships from Iowa. Now the one says there's five. But again, you have an origin story where these ships are, ships are being made. You're seeing them all over the Midwest. You're seeing them all out west. All at a time when there shouldn't be anything in the skies at all. We're talking 1897, right? 1896, 1897. And the claim is that these ships are made in Iowa, right? Well, that was the story that was given to the one right. farmer in Uvalde. Um, and what's interesting about this Mr. Wilson was, one of the things that Mr. Wilson asked the farmer was, he had known of a uh, police officer that he met in Dallas, Texas, or Arlington, Texas, at a summit earlier, several years earlier, and he asked to see him. I think his name was... Uh, I'm not exactly sure, J.C. Hayward or something along those lines. Okay. And he said no, that he had moved down to Eagle Pass. And he asked, Wilson at the time asked the, the sheriff of Uvalde if he could pass along his good tidings. What's interesting is that gentleman who lived in Eagle Pass then came out several weeks later after this story was published and said, yeah, I did know a Mr. Wilson. I did meet a Mr. Wilson in Dallas who was from New York and he was of a scientific mind and he claimed that he had something that the world would be astonished by so these stories seem to have some credence and these stories are popping up everywhere they're not just in Kansas they're not just in Texas but I've never heard of the 1897 airship mystery and, and their claims of Traveling from Iowa all the way to the Gulf, to Chicago, to Michigan, to Illinois, and you're seeing these ships all the way out in California and Oakland. 
these ships are going more than the five or ten miles that the Europeans we're, are. We're, we're are talking. Going. We're we're also talking about electrical properties that have lighting that is with with lumens that nobody's ever witnessed before. I mean, we're talking about during a time when electricity was just so new, right? 1897, there, there, there's so many areas where electricity still doesn't even exist. Nowhere. Nowhere. And again, how, how can you even... I, I keep trying to put myself back there in that time. I would have no idea what I'm looking at. It, it would look like a spaceship, right? So one's got to ask, these are pretty amazing events. Like, why weren't these people given the credit that maybe the Wright brothers were given? The, the fact that it seems that these guys were looking for patents, why were these patents never given? Well, there were patents approved during the time, but the concepts apparently never came to fruition. You said 1897, right? Correct. So the the light bulb was actually invented in 1879. Right. So the power of... And as we go along with the story into this episode, into future episodes, you're going to see the correlation that it's very interesting whenever they make these stops. Again, they keep asking for water. Almost as if water might end up being some sort of power source I mean one of the questions that comes to mind is the claim is that the ships were constructed in Iowa right well I'm sure it was San Francisco yeah right okay so even in during this time 1897 it's still a desolate area right oh yeah yeah the population I mean even now the population they're they're right but it's not like Iowa doesn't have water though no yeah I mean they've got so the why the river the Mississippi River? Why why the need to get water from other areas? I guess. Well, because maybe they probably can't carry that much water, right? I mean, if they're traveling from Iowa all the way down to Texas, they're going to have to have a new fuel source if water is the fuel source. I see. Okay, makes sense. Right. So as I started look, going through some of this research, I came across a guy by the name of Walter Bosley. Uh, he's an author, and he has a lot of interesting books that he has written. He's got a 19-year career in the government. He was a FBI uh, resource officer, and then he also worked in counterterrorism for the FBI. He also was in the U.S. Air Force as an operational consultant for six years. And uh, he's written some pretty interesting books regarding these, uh, these airships. And he enlightened me to a story that I had never heard of. Now, we're going to go back a little bit deeper in time. Okay. If that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Already, we're six, seven years prior to the Wright brothers, right? And my contention is whenever we look at these stories, we have to say, if there is some sort of breakaway civilization that had the technology, that technology isn't going to approach out of nowhere. It's, it's, there has to be an origin source and there has to be a procession of this technology. It's just not going to fall out of the sky. Hey. Okay. Huh? Nice. Nice? <laughs> right. So, have you ever heard of the guy named Solomon Andrews? Solomon Andrews. I believe I have heard that name before. 
Okay. I, but again, that's you know, it's one of those things where, yeah, I think you know what I heard of that. Go on. Solomon Andrews was an inventor, and he was described as an aviator, born in 1806, and he was a doctor. What's interesting about him is that, if you could believe it, he actually set up uh, in 1863 a ship that he called an Arion, and he actually flew it over Perth Amboy, New Jersey. He had three 80-foot cigar-shaped balloons with a rubber, with a rudder and a gondola, and he was able to control his buoyancy going forward and backwards. He wrote to Abraham Lincoln later that summer, offering the Arion for use in the American Civil War. It, after much discussion, he arranged a demonstration early in 1864 before the Smithsonian Institute and the War Council. But then Lincoln and his War Council told him later that the war was almost over and they didn't need anything to do with his flight contraption. Okay. Now, what fascinates me is I've never heard about any sort of airship in 1863. I, during the Civil War, an airship would have been a game changer. Oh, it would have been over. I mean... So quickly it would have been over. How many lives... He, he presented the idea in 1863. Uh, the Civil War ended in 1865. I could be wrong. 1866, something along that. How many lives could have been saved? And that's one of the bloodiest wars ever. Yeah. Um, I think it was the most bloody war ever in American soil. Yeah. And again, here we go. This 1863-1864, Mario, we're talking 34, 35 years before this airship mystery. There was information and technology heading towards the idea of flight. Way before any time we were ever told. What I find interesting about that is it's describing to the mark this airship, right? The cigar-shaped airship as people were describing in 1897 in your stories here. And the different headlines you were reading off of the cigar-shaped right. machine in the sky. We're, we're, we're talking about the what seems like the same exact thing, right? Right. And, and mind you... I understand we're talking about with when we when we go and we talk about Solomon Andrews here, we're talking more of a dirigible, right? We're talking more of a blimp. We're talking more of that type of technology. But again, the common technology or the common thought at the time of 1897 was that they didn't have the ability to really traverse very long stretches at all because they just weren't safe. But here in America, we, we have this one, you know, maverick who has dipped his toe into this technology of flight, so much so that he has the ability to present it to the War Council as, you know, a possible possible use for, for military use. I mean, that the fact that it was never even presented to us as being in our history books at all. Just, I mean, at this point in my adult life, it doesn't doesn't surprise me, but it's fascinating that here I am 
42 years old, and this is the first time I ever heard of this guy. So that leads us to the next part of this story. So we have the airship mystery in 1897, and we have Solomon Andrews in 18... Uh, I said 1997, again, I did not. 1897 and 1863-64. It's so surprising, just in my common speech pattern, I have a hard time saying 1897. Yeah, you're talking about flight. You're not thinking pre 19 Exactly. Uh, indoctrination. <laughs> <laughs> so, if if the story stopped there, it would be fascinating, would it not? Sure. That's not where it stops. The story of flight in modern, quote-unquote, modern written history goes back even further than that not much further but in the 1850s if i were to ask you the question have you ever heard of something called the sonora aero club sonora aero club no no okay interesting there is this gentleman by the name of charles a.a dalshaw he was an immigrant that came into texas in 1850 and his place of origin, his birth of origin, was a place called Prussia. Prussia, Germany, which is modern-day Germany. It's northern provinces of what Germ- is now Germany. At the time, in the 1800s, Germany was broken up into... Once again, the Germans are relevant. Okay? Yes, again. So, he immigrates from Prussia. I believe it was Brandenburg, Prussia, is where he was born. Let me check that. Uh, yeah. And uh, he immigrates to Galveston, Texas. Again, another connection to Texas. But from there, he goes ahead and he travels out to Sonora, California. Northern California, a place where some of those airships were supposedly spotted spotted in yeah. 1897. So this Sonora Aero Club... What they are, they were described in Dalshaw's journals, which were found, I believe it was in the 1960s, and almost thrown away. Uh, they were, there was a house fire in his house because this Dalshaw lived into the early 1900s, and his family kept all of his journals, and that's where a lot of this information comes from. Uh, again, this is, comes from uh, Walter Bosley's research. Again, he's a fascinating guy. He has a lot of really cool information on this. So if you guys ever want to look him up, he has a lot of information on this Sonora Aero Club. And uh, this Charles A.A. Dalshaw, so Charles Dalshaw, he goes out to Sonora and he claims that he is sort of a stenographer, right? And almost like a secretary that records the minutes of these meetings from the Sonora Aero Club. And... Well, we find out he has all these journals, right? All these schematics, all these drawings. And these drawings are very strange. They're of these flying contraptions, of these almost uh, dirigible-like components, wing, uh, half-wing, full-wing, just all different kinds of flying contraptions that he claims is part of this group that's testing out all this this fascination with flight and uh in his journals and what were found were within these inventions according to chow they had managed to create navigable aircraft in a time before airplanes with advanced motors and all manners of different kinds of sophisticated aeronautical technology 
well before its time. And even an anti-gravity substance referred to as lifting fluid or also known as soup or sup. Are you, wait, are you telling me the anti-gravity technology existed in the mid-1800s? Is that what you're telling me? That is what his journals describe. Matter of fact, they had a name for this. It was called anti-gravity fuel NB gas. And according to him, the club went through great lengths to protect this secrecy, wearing disguises, having aliases, using codes, some of which are in DeShell's own notes, and hiding their designs well. DeShell tells of the club's adventures flying these machines all over California's landscape and goes into some detail about how some of them worked displaying surprisingly advanced concepts for their time, and he explains that the club disbanded only when the creator of their anti-gravity fuel, Peter Menace, mysteriously died. And what's interesting about this, and we're going to get into this in a couple of clips later on, is Peter Menace was a German immigrant. And Wait, so am, am I to understand that this... What is his name? Peter Menace. Peter Menace could possibly be the creator of element 115 i mean i don't know i don't know about that connection but it's an anti if is that's it, that's what we're told by not Bob a Lazar, possible right? theory here from what you're telling me no yeah possibly yeah um because element 115 is what bob lazar says that the ufos use for anti-gravity anti-gravity right? propulsion right but the concept of anti-gravity seems to have already been looked into by this group the sonora aero club and <laughs> funny if you look at some of dalshaw's notes they're written in cipher you can't cipher all of them and one has a question why would he cipher his personal journals if there wasn't information that he didn't want released now there's speculation that dalshaw the reason why he went to Northern California, to this German, because uh, this Sonora Aero Club group has a lot of German immigrants. Okay, and they wanted to go to one of the most remote areas in the world to go ahead and do this research. And at the time, there was a lot of different people that were being funded to do this exotic technology, right? And one of the groups that funded this Sonora Aero Club was a group called NIMSA. Okay. NY, let me get this right, or actually NJMZA, which is the, the German acronym for it. NJMZA. Correct. Which loosely translated, because it's hard to translate some different languages, Yeah, uh, is the nationalist... Pursuit Exploration of Airships and Programs Office. So, that keyword being nationalist, which will play a part going forward. Um, this was a uh, financial group based in Prussia that would fund research with warships and, and other exotic technology trying to uh, weaponize flight basically uh and in his journal it talks about how he was basically sent there 
by NIMSA to sort of keep an eye on things and report back to Prussia. So this NIMSA group who had funding all throughout the world starts getting their fingers into some of this exotic technologies going all the way back to the 1850s. And there's some evidence that NIMSA actually goes all the way back into the early 1800s. So it's fascinating. Some of the other excerpts from his journal as he talks about some of the pilots of these flying contraptions. Uh, and funny enough, there is an Air Trump. There's an Air Jordan. <laughs> uh, this, I get, apparently this is how they name their dirigibles or their, their flights. So there's an Air Trump and an Air Jordan. And there's actually even an Air Wilson. Okay. Which is interesting if you go back to the sightings of 1897. Yeah. So possibly a, an ancestor, a father, or a grandfather of a Wilson that was looking into the same technology going 40, 50 years later. So again, here we have a group, a German financial group, which how do, you know, where do we hear that type of verbiage with the Rothschilds and the Deutsche Bank, right? Rothschild group, we talk about constantly uh, about how the Rothschild banks financially control the undersea the undersea belly of the beast and Deutsche Bank funding a bunch of carnage with the Epstein pedophiles in Europe. It seems like this, these, and we'll get into it a little bit further, but it also kind of has a connection with maybe NIMSA at one point in the past, maybe found its way coalescing with some of these German banks. So you have a group that's highly motivated, right, in Prussia that has seemingly gone out and outsourced information or outsourced technology trying to weaponize aerial flight in the 1850s, crescendoing into some of this research of Deschal again, uh, I want to go ahead and bring to everybody's attention real quick here too. Within a lot of these diagrams of Dao Shao's book, if people are wondering, shit, you know, this technology, we're talking about anti-gravity, we're talking about machines, we're talking about flight. Does Is there any evidence of this technology going back before, you know, 18... The Delshell states that these ships were 1856, 1857, 1858. You know, he after he arrived in America in 1850, traveling out there. Um, actually, yes, there is. Have you ever heard of the Racine turbine? Racine turbine. Yeah. No. Okay. In 1849, there was a gentleman by the name of Racine William John who was born in 1820 in Edinburgh, Scotland. Now, I've actually heard his name pronounced two different ways. Rankine or Racine. Racine. And uh, he basically created what we use today in power plants. He, He created a machine that, for all intents and purposes, is the cycle 
and a theoretical expression of the work of thermodynamics. Uh, this is the process during which the operation of steam power plants in a repetitious mode. It is possible to sing out, single out the operations in four different elements. Uh, the liquid evaporation of high pressure, water molecules in a gaseous state expand, wet steam condenses on the walls of the vessel, and that fluid pressure increases. Wait, so uh, we're talking about hydrogen combustion. Hydrogen Hydrogen steam power. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Steam power, water. I mean, wasn't there an inventor who invented an engine that did this that was mysteriously murdered? Yes. Well, interesting. This this technology uh, actually is still used today in power plants, nuclear power plants. Yeah. Um, but my, my interest was that, again, water seems to be a power source of some kind, which... If you go back to the airship mystery, they constantly ask for water when those airships landed. Um, this unit is a heat engine, and as a result, it uh, as a result, electricity is generated. And the main nodes of this installation can be presented in the following list: movable parts, which consist of a rotor and a fixed blade, and a stationary element having such const- constituent parts as a stator and a nozzle. Uh, this technology is used in plants today, and the working of that plant can be ca- characterized in this way. Water is the gaseous state as a, at a high temperature, and pressure is fed into the turbine nozzles. Here, at a supersonic velocity, the potential energy of the vapor turns into a kinetic energy while the particles of the vapor are driven. This, in turn, creates a gaseous flow that acts on the turbine blades. Rotation of these elements cause the rotor to move, resulting in the formation of electricity. Further condensation of the vapor takes place, and it settles into a special chilled water receiver, from where the liquid is again forced into a heat exchanger. Thus there, the repetition of operations, uh, that is the racing or ranking cycle, is performed. So we're talking about a perpetual water machine. And this is something that they use in power plants to cool down elements of I guess the plant and it's well known I'm, I'm speaking out of breath here but what I want to drive home is the schematics of this technology was found in the drawings of A.A. A. Dalshell whenever he was describing some of the airships that he was drawing the schematics to as well in the mid-1800s. In the mid-1800s. So, this correlates right around the same time. You know, this this Scottish inventor has this break breakthrough of steam power engines. But somehow, this, this Prussian German immigrant also shows this same type of technology. And if you combine that with the fact that we're constantly seeing this repetition of water being needed for these airships and some sort of anti-gravity some sort of they also talk about a soup or some sort of sup element that is in these machines you start seeing here that the actual technology is is viable it, it seems to start progressing and a matter of fact we have a clip I want to play where Walter 
uh, Bosley did an interview with a podcaster named uh, Being Raised by Giant. Raised by Giants. It's a really cool podcast. Uh, I don't know if he has a whole lot of views, so maybe check him out. And uh, we've got a couple clips from this interview, and this will easily and summar- summarize everything going forward. So from your knowledge, uh, Walter, I, I know that you've talked about this in, in your books and you've done lectures on it and speaking about it you know, several times. But for the purposes of this interview and, and laying some foundation, how far back does these breakaway civilizations go that has been developing these ty- kinds of uh, craft and uh, technology known as airships? Well, if you're looking at it from the context of uh, what we call secret societies that would be groups with the knowledge of uh, exotic technologies, um, now th- meaning technologies that were exotic for their day, you could argue that y- you could go back centuries. There's the Society Angelique, the Angelic Society, which um, many people suspect influenced Jules Verne for example, and that one goes back uh, easily into the 18th century. Uh, But when you're talking about breakaway groups within the context that, you know, I and Joseph Farrell and and several others talk about, um, based on my research, uh, I say that they go back um, about 170 years just under 200 years because we have Charles Delshaw as the primary source of the Sonora Aero Club stories and the mysterious Nimza. And um, as near as I can tell so far, I, I would place the origins of Nimza in the early 19th century. So, you know, almost, almost 200 years. And there's two groups, right? A breakaway uh, American group around the Civil War era, and then a, a breakaway German group that existed before that, right? Well, that when we're talking Delschau, we're talking about the German group called Nimza. That's how he referred to them. And um, the idea of an American group um, starting to get into this and do things uh, around the uh, Civil War is, it's a hypothesis. It's, it's one that I have t- attempted to flesh out, but it's based on an actual event. A guy named Solomon Andrews um, built an airship, uh, uh, which he demonstrated, a model of, it, of his plan, which he demonstrated to um, representatives of Abraham Lincoln's war cabinet during the Civil War. I think it was, it was either 1863 or 1864. And there's a newspaper report on it because newspaper reporters were there also witnessing this thing. Now, this wasn't just, you know, because they had hot air balloons back then. It wasn't just a hot air balloon. It was uh, a craft which, um, well, hold on a second. Let me grab this because I'm building a model actually of the Solomon Andrews airship that was demonstrated for Lincoln's war cabinet. And um, I've started on the basic structure, but the basic structure, this is a good, can you see this? Yeah. Yeah. This is a good model of, I'll I'll be adding the rest, but essentially it was three um, cigar shaped uh, hulls, I guess you would say, or, or fuselages um, connected together with a gondola underneath 
And Solomon Andrews was able to, you know, uh, direct the, I guess, which I'm not a pilot, so pitch and yaw and all that stuff. Uh, but it, it was actually a controlled uh, airship. It wasn't more so than hot air balloons were able to be controlled back then. And when you consider what Delshaw, Charles Delshaw's claims described were being done by um, uh, the Sonora Air Club in the 1850s in California. And then you talk about the Solomon Andrews craft. And then you look 30 years after the Civil War at the 1890s airship mystery. What I see there is a progression from the concepts that the Sonora Aero Club were, you know, according to Del Shell, fooling with in the 1850s. And the concepts that uh, Solomon Andrews was operating with, with his airship called the Aeron, by the way, in my mind, from my perspective, what was described in the 1890s appears to me to be a technological progression of that technology. Now, even though the Sonora Aero Club was um, functioning, operating, doing these things under kind of a sponsorship of the German group NIMSA, Delshaw tells us that there was some friction between the Sonora Aero Club and NIMSA. The bottom line was the German immigrants of the Sonora Aero Club living in California, they didn't like NIMSA. <laughs> they wanted to do their own thing. NIMSA wanted them to make these things into war machines. They didn't want to do that. They were interested in pursuing flight. So there was a falling out there. And then we have Solomon Andrews, an American emerging during the Civil War. And then 30 years after that, we have this airship mystery, right, um, uh, emerging in the Western United States for the most part. Uh, so it appears to me that um, the airship mystery was an American phenomenon in origin, whoever was behind these machines. And we even have um, a, a documented, a guy who existed in history, Colonel Samuel Tillman, who was associated with the airship mystery by name. So there you have a U.S. Army guy, and you have a guy named Amos Dolbear. Look him up. He was a, a known scientist for his day, and they were partnered up and uh, reportedly aboard one of these things. So all that has led me to hypothesize with confidence that indeed an American airship group, so to speak, had emerged um, uh, starting in the mid uh, post-Civil War period of the 19th century. And um, whatever uh, Delshaw's NIMSA did between the 1850s of the Sonora Aero Club time and World War II, my research has led me to hypothesize, and again, with confidence, that NIMSA uh, likely was the thread between whatever exotic technologies were being explored in the mid-19th century and, and the exotic technologies being explored by Nazi Germany. Because when you look close at the details of what Delshaw was describing and, and what he um, provided in schematics. Charles Delshaw, you, people are really astonished when they see the hundreds of illustrations he did of these alleged flying machines, which he claimed they were using, designing, using in the 1850s. So there you guys have it. I mean, 
all this information prior to the Wright brothers, I I'm fascinated by it. I, I never was exposed to any of this information before, and that's sort of kind of how we come about with this information to you guys on the podcast. We try to present new, exciting, different information. I know this is a little bit technical, but it's needed to go forward in this exploration of, of this breakaway civilization. So with some of that being said, I'm, I'm curious, uh, Mario, you're over here just absorbing all this information. What exactly do you, uh, what's some of your assessments of this? Well, I mean, if it's anything like the rest of our listeners right now, where my frame of thinking is going, it's a lot of information to take in, right? Cause as you said, in the beginning of the episode and throughout the episode, this is not what we were taught. And you know, our textbooks and you know our school systems is not what we were told, right? But why would we be? Uh, you, the topic of this and the title of this episode is Breakaway Civilizations. Well, this seems to be a breakaway project. I, I don't know. A breakaway project of sorts with you know possibly a civilization just to see you know what what can be done as far as aromatics right we're talking about flight in the mid 1800s we're talking about possible anti-gravity technology that is just unfathomable to us here in 2022 right now and we're just now talking about possibly seeing airships in the sky that are non-terrestrial what if they're all terrestrial what if every bit of this is all terrestrial right and this is technology that has been had before world war ii and and again before the civil war before the civil war but again this this is germany rearing you know their their place in all of this then you have the Nazis that come about, and then you start talking about the Nazi bell and all this stuff. If this technology, you're right, and I think I just struck a nerve with you, if this technology did in fact exist as early as the mid-1800s, then why not? Why wouldn't we already have this tech? Why wouldn't certain quote-unquote civilizations or entities, right, different pieces of government entities, I guess, secret entities, secret societies, if you will, have this technology available to them. What what, what if this technology had already existed before Roswell, before all of this stuff? And this, this is just a way to play on the minds of people. You know, maybe one day you'll see this technology, but right now this technology is for us. We know what's best for you. Right? I mean, that's kind of what I'm getting out of all of this. Yeah. I'm going to possibly expand that notion even more. Going forward now. So we now we have a little bit of a basis of what's going on, right? I want to ask you a question. Have you ever heard of the gentleman's name of... John W. Keeley. No, I can't say that I have. Okay. Now, in 1896, again, so we're talking 19th century, pre-1900, 
There were reports that a John Keeley demonstrated a rather interesting airship to the United States War Department in 1896. Right before the sightings in 1897. Right, exactly. Exactly. So, <laughs> so you, you beat me to it. Uh, this was There was a description by a reporter of an airship. Now, this Keeley says that he had a ship purportedly had six main elements. And those six elements were one, a machine to split the water molecule for the instantaneous release of a tremendous pressure. Two, an engine which was reportedly driven by the flow of ether into its components. Three, designed and built a mineral disintegrator. Four, an acoustic microscope capable of viewing into the molecular and atomic intersices of matter. Five, a globe which could be made to rotate with no outside source of a power as a demonstrated of the etheric flows into matter. And the sixth one is a belt device which enabled the operator to induce levitation or gravity in, its, in a test of mass. So during this demonstration for the War Department... Uh, this reporter was quoted as the space which with the propeller of the airship occupies in Keeley's laboratory comes within a radius of six feet square, a small space for so powerful a medium, distributing over 1,000 horsepower as tested by experiments. It consists of over 2,000 pieces and weighed in excess of 1,000 pounds. Keeley's airship included a small stool that was placed so that it faced a keyboard. Many resonating plates and vibrating mechanisms were attached to this keyboard. And according to Keeley, when the plates were polarized with negative attractions, the airship would rise and float above the ground. Then Keeley could make his airship accelerate to any desired speed by dampening out certain notes on the keyboard. This demonstration of the airship purportedly took place in an open field where Keeley brought the airship from 0 to 500 miles per hour within seconds. Keeley was sitting on the stool and before the keyboard, according to the account. There was nothing to shield him from the movement of the ship, yet he seemed to suffer absolutely no acceleration effects. As unlikely as it sounds, the War Department was impressed yet stated they could see no use for such a complex device. In this report, it said, if true, this seems terribly short-sighted, yet this may not have been the end of Keeley's ship. A few months later, in the fall of 1896, all these airships started popping up. So we're, we're, we're talking about technology again. Anti-gravity. We're talking about molecular gravity bending technology breaking down, water. <laughs> breaking down while we're talking makes about my brain hurt deep deep right so of course it didn't hurt him because if, if he's in a base of zero gravity no matter how fast he's traveling he's still in the base of zero gravity it wouldn't hurt him and i never really put that together whenever you know the uh Tic Tac videos were released, and and the Navy was talking about you know the way these machines were moving. There's no way a human body could be inside of it. it would destroy 
their molecular structure unless they were in the center of zero gravity where they cannot feel gravity. So would you be describing something from our previous podcast with Mr. Tim Sanders in that the zero point energy of a toroidal field does not become affected? Where it's protected by zero gravity? Oh, toroidal energy. It may play a part in this upcoming podcast, my friend. Very, very fascinating stuff here, Jeffro. Very fascinating, which you know I never really dug too far into it, but now that I'm saying it out loud, makes complete sense. Yeah, mine is a little blown right now. Um, Jeffro, what else do you have for us? Uh, listen, we we've got one or two more clips we want to I want to share from uh, Raising Giants interview with Walter Bosley. Here's a insert. Humans always leave a paper trail, right? You can always track where they've been by, you know, what they fund and what they do. So uh, from my understanding, you have uh, researched a, the, the money funders behind uh, the Prussians. Uh, and you've also, you've tracked this and you've not only tracked the, uh, the Prussians, but you've uh, Prussians Ninza, but you know the people that were funding the Sonara Aero Club uh, as well. And I just wanted to uh, quickly get your well, not quickly. We can go as how, however long uh, you need to go to fully get your explanation of who was uh, you know funding these groups because I believe that this is a very important aspect to you know figure out who was supplying. Uh, and funding uh, the, the Prussians and, uh, and right the bankers and yeah. and it, yeah it's interesting when you look at the history of the banks that existed and how far they go back and their connections to the modern you know uh, German banks I, when I say modern I mean going into the 20th century in the World War II era and then since then leading right up to Deutsche Bank um, there are. Um, <clears throat> These are the candidates for who would have been financing a group like NIMSA. And this helps you uh, pinpoint individuals, right? Because you can look at, okay, who, who were the bankers themselves? Uh, and you can do the same thing with the uh, then Prussian, ultimately German um, industrial base, right? I do a similar thing with those guys dating back to um, the very last few years of the 18th century and going, you know, through the 19th century, um, the, the guys who were the leaders in the technology of the day, you know, the industrialists, and then you see how many of them um, were at the same time fascinated with um, exotic technology or, or um, the occult, right? And, and when I say the occult, I mean, what would lead them to um, uh, learning what the secret societies, what the lost technology would have been. <clears throat> and this was the kind of thing these guys were interested in so that when you're looking at what Delshaw reported was being done in the mid 19th century, when you look at in the 20th century, <clears throat> Nazi Germany and we know that a lot of those guys were also fascinated with the occult. What were they learning in these ancient texts? You know, what, what were they learning that they were developing in a practical way? And 
I, I think that through looking at these people, the, the potential financiers, the uh, industrialists that would had to have been the ones involved in this, um, you can better pinpoint the, the answers to those questions as to what were they learning? What, what were they looking for? Because you can see it in where the money went and you can see it in what was being developed. You know, something like the bell has the fingerprints of, you know, an ancient lost technology all over its concept. And even when you look at something like the Racine turbine, well, you know, um, uh, up until the mid 19th century, you still had philosopher scientists. Okay. These were technicians and, and scientific experts who were also fascinated with these esoteric concepts. Okay. And so, you know, Racine himself could very well have been influenced by some of these exotic um, suspected ancient lost technologies in the development of his turbine. Okay. Uh, very much so he could have been influenced by that. So, and this is the milieu of what was going on in the 19th century. And um, uh, when you look at what was the direction Germany went with their exotic technology and their advanced technology in the 20th century, and you look at what Delshaw was reporting and, and all this stuff that, you know, with the airship mysteries and, and the Sonora Aero Club, and then you look at these industrialists who were very tight with the bankers because these were the guys where they would get their money to do this stuff, and you look at their interests, um, it, uh, it really enlightens you to what they might have actually been up to, what they were about, and it makes sense of um, the rise of Nazi Germany, the rise of their technological base and, and the direction. It's, it's my opinion that NIMSA, whatever NIMSA was, was absorbed into the whole Nazi machine. That it, that I'm I'm convinced of that, and um, I, I I think that that led ultimately to the Deutsche Bank of that you know that's been around since World War II and still exists today. You've got the roots of this in there. Um, so yeah, it, I find it interesting that Deutsche Bank was the first bank that was listed on the stock exchange after uh, 9/11. So investments of the stock exchange during or, or after 9-11, the, the, these bankers, the uh, elites, the controllers of the world, they know exactly what they're doing, don't they? I mean, when would the stocks be the least, or where would they be at their lowest point? You buy low, you sell high. Follow the money. We say it all the time. You say it all the time. Follow the money. Follow the money. And in this previous clip, they nicely wrap in together everything from the racy engine starting pre-1850 all the way up through the Sonora Aero Club being funded by NIMSA, this mysterious financial group in, in Prussia. Well, I mean, time. you say NIMSA in Germany, and I, anytime, I, I can't, you say NIMSA Germany, I think Nazi Germany. Uh, that's just me, but. Well, it's interesting you say that because when we talked about the acronym nationalist, yeah, that's what a. That's what they were called. They were the German Nationalist Party. Yeah, were they not? They were. 
So that's why I said it would play a part. I mean, you these are loose threads, but before Not- today, have you guys ever heard of a Abraham Lincoln having a war council meeting with a flying dirigible? I, what else are you going to hear? Like, I never heard anything going back to the 1850s about any sort of flying group. Well, and to your point, you know, why not take that technology in? Like you said, that would have ended the war right there. Right. Who is he being told not to take the technology? Somebody is stopping him from taking the technology at that point is what I am thinking. For whatever reason, we're all on a grand stage and somebody's setting it up. Definitely. Jeffro, uh, I don't want to leave our listeners on a cliffhanger, but we're going to. We're going to have to leave them on a cliffhanger because we've got much more information. You have much more information on all of this. This The, the information we've presented here, we're going to cut off here purposefully because everything we presented to you at this point has been pre-1900. Yeah. Think about this, people. Pre-1900. Anti-gravity technology. Somebody like Keeley showing the War Department in 1896 going from zero to 500 miles an hour using plates and resonance and water molecule breakdown for power source. Again, water being very interesting in these airships as well. It seems this water keeps popping up in all these all this pre-technology of pre-1900. And even in the 1970s, like I said, when the uh, hydrogen engine was invented, why, why? Why are they trying to keep people away from this technology Was it invented so much? or was it rediscovered? Well, I mean, it, it was to this man, I believe it was invented, and then it was quickly silenced because they don't want the common people to have this technology for whatever reason. What I want to leave everybody with going forward as we sign off here is the thought of a breakaway civilization starting to materialize. If there are listeners out there who initially say, that doesn't quite make sense, where would the technology be? Exhibit A. The technology was there. It was suppressed. It was hidden. It was exotic technology that was funded way earlier than we or most people have ever even begin to contemplate and it's still fucking mind-blowing i'm sorry buddy uh (laughs) yeah so we're gonna end it here jeffro until then until then mario